Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the New Books Network. This is Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking to Dr. Michael Brown about a recent book he published with Cambridge University Press. The book is called Emotions and Surgery in Britain, 1793 to 1912. Dr. Michael Brown is a lecturer in modern British history. He's a cultural historian of modern Britain, roughly between 1750 to 1914. And his uh, fields of interest are medicine, surgery, gender, the body and emotions. Uh, Michael, welcome to New Books Network. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, can you please, uh, Michael, introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your field of expertise, especially um, emotions and history of emotions. I guess that's a new topic that some of our listeners may not be familiar with. And then you could also talk about how the idea of this book, uh, Emotions and Surgery, uh, came about. Excellent. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah. So basically, yeah, this is a relatively new departure for me in terms of um, my background history of emotions, that is. Uh, I really I was sort of trained as a historian of uh, science and medicine um, and and I've always been interested in the kind of cultural history of medicine uh, and increasingly the body. Um, and I also have other interests as well in the kind of cultural history of war across the long 19th century. Um, and gender history. But really, this book originated with an article I published a few years ago now um, on uh, uh, a chap called Bransby Cooper, who was a um, uh, a London surgeon um, in the early 19th century. Uh, and there's an operation that he performed in the late 1820s, 1828, uh, for the removal of a stone um, from um, from a man called Stephen Pollard at at, um, uh, at Guy's Hospital. Um, which um, went badly wrong um, and was uh, widely criticised, especially by The Lancet, this newly founded reforming radical medical journal uh, established by Thomas Wackley. And I was interested in the kind of ways in which this criticism of Cooper was couched and what he was criticised for in terms of his behaviour during the operation. Um, and it was his lack of resolve, his lack of kind of self-control, his 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 sort of tendency to speak to the audience to, to seek seek reassurances from others, and I was very interested by by the, these kind of dynamics and what these dynamics to, would, might tell us about what operators what what uh, you know surgeons in the pre-anesthetic period were how they were expected to perform how they were expected to behave. And we haven't haven't actually an awful, despite the fact that surgery is you know it's an operative art, it's a, it's, a, it's a performative practice. We don't actually have an awful lot of historical work on the kind of performance of, of surgery. So I was interested by sort of what made this a bad performance as opposed to a good performance. And I sort of saw, you know, emotions were kind of central to, the, to, these, uh, to, this, to this explanation, um, that it was his lack of kind of emotional self-control, his inability to kind of control the situation. And actually emotions were also deployed in the criticism of him. There was an you know, evocation of kind of, an attempt on the part of the Lancet to to kind of evoke anger um, uh, against Cooper and pity for um, Pollard. 
um, and and this kind of outrage as well that that that, that was generated by the coverage. So I was really interested by how how actually the emotional dynamics um, were at play here, and that really led me on to a kind of broader project. Which was ultimately funded by the Wellcome Trust. Um, between uh, it was a Wellcome Trust Investigator Award um, that I held between uh, 2016 and 2021 called um, Surgery and Emotion, and it basically it was a multi-handed project of which I was principal investigator. But my particular part on it was to think about the place of emotion within the cultures of operative surgery in Britain from the late 18th to the 19th century. And this is a period of huge change, of course, where you know we're going from a pre-anesthetic era to a post-anesthetic era. And I was interested by, you know, what were those emotional dynamics like, particularly in the pre-anesthetic period? Because we have a very um, set image, I think, a very, there's a kind of popular image of surgeons of this period being, we'll come on to maybe talk about this, you know, being kind of cruel or unfeeling. And actually, of course, it's very hard for us, almost impossible for us, I think, to comprehend um, what it must have been like to be operated on without anesthesia. Um, and so I wanted to kind of see what role emotions, how how emotions history um, and a sensitivity to the emotions, the operation of the emotions could help us recover some of those aspects of, 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 of pre-modern surgical experience and pre-modern surgical practice. Well, you've raised a lot of uh, fascinating points, which I'm sure we'll talk about as we go ahead. Uh, and speaking of the performative aspect of surgery, I myself up to like three, three years ago, I did not know the roots of the word like um, theater, op I mean, operating theater. Did not know that like in even in nineteenth century there were that there was this like large audience just watching a surgeon and I think um, and speaking again of uh, the idea of a surgeon as being a callous butcher <laughs> it was just uh, interesting a few months ago I watched that classic movie if I, if I remember the name correctly it was called the Blood Alley or Alley of Blood mm. which was about this doctor was. Uh, who was always bothered, I mean, sort of yeah, bothered by the idea that these patients were going through a lot of pain and was trying to find um, some some sort of anesthetics. But anyway, uh, we'll talk about some of these issues as we go ahead. So uh, speaking of anesthesia, can you tell us about the, uh, the role it played in sort of assuaging a surgical pain and the impact it had on a, on, on a surgeon's emotional dynamics? And in the book, you talk about an interesting case, uh, George Wilson. So it would be great if you could um, um, mm -hmm. expand on that as well. Yeah, I mean, I open I open the book with 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 um, a letter that George Wilson, who was an Edinburgh academic, um, wrote to James Young Simpson, the Edinburgh uh, physician and uh, discoverer of chloroform. Um, and it's a fascinating letter because Wilson is reflecting on from a post-anesthetic world about the pre-anesthetic experience of his surgery. So he, he had his foot removed by um, Edinburgh surgeon called James Syme, a well-known surgeon of the period in 1842, a matter of years before anesthesia, um, uh, inhalation anesthesia was introduced. And he talks about the experience of surgery you know, in, 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 in profoundly emotional terms. So, you know, he, and I think what I was interested in, why I kind of wanted to open with this, is to kind of think about the emotional world that he's describing, you know? a world in which, um, you know, people expect to die from surgery. You know, they don't expect to live. He, he talks about preparing for death um, and having to kind of take a week to before the operation to prepare himself emotionally and psychologically and spiritually to die. Um, and that's just so alien to our, you know, to our kind of modern conception. I mean, yes we might approach surgery with a certain amount of trepidation and anxiety. And even today, surgeons will warn patients, especially if it's undertaken under general anaesthetic, that there are risks, but we don't expect to die. 
Um, and, and what was interesting about Wilson is he did expect to die. And it was a removal of his foot, which was, you know, it was a, a significant operation, of course, and profoundly important for him. Um, but it wasn't the most sort of challenging or, 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 or you know, drastic of, of early of, of pre-modern surgical procedures. So I was interested by the way in which he talked about the, the emotions and he talked about how this kind of black whirlwind of emotion, as he described it, continued to haunt him for the rest of his life. You know, the pain of it, he largely he couldn't really quite remember, um, but he remembers the, 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 just the overwhelming sort of anxiety and, and fear. Um, and sense of desertion, as he calls it, by God and man. Um, and he also talks about preparing for the operation as being like a, a condemned criminal waiting to be hanged. Um, and it, it intrigued me that surgeons also talk about preparing for surgery in those terms. So John Abernethy, uh, a famous uh, London surgeon of the early 19th century, talks was asked once how he felt before going to an operation, and he said, I felt as if I was going to be hanged. So there's a sense in which that this that pre-anesthetic surgery is kind of couched in a profound pathos, a kind of sadness, and a sense of its, you know, um, that this is a last resort that may not be survivable. Uh, and it's something which surgeons feel as well as patients. You know, they don't go in there casually. It's something which they do with a certain braveness of attitude and, and sense of sadness. Um, uh, and it's yet it's their professional lot, you know, it's what they do for a living, uh, many of them. Um, so I was interested, that's what, what reason why I started with that. And of course, in the middle of this is this intervening um, transformation in 1846, 1847, where um, first ether and then chloroform are introduced as means of eliminating surgical pain. Um, and this is, you know, like a lot of academics, I guess, I started off wanting to tell a kind of counterintuitive narrative about the history of surgery in the 19th century, you know, and in a sense, I have, we'll come on to that perhaps, but, uh, you know, you want to kind of say, well, you know, and anesthesia is maybe not as important as it's been made out. It, it, one can't say that. <laughs> anesthesia, the introduction of anesthesia is utterly transformative for patient experience and for surgical experience and for the kind of emotional terrain of surgery generally, because effectively, you know, you have Patients who now don't have to fear the pain. I mean, you know, just don't have to experience the pain of surgery. That's not to say that they don't go into operations without anxiety. They do, and anesthesia produces its own anxieties about um, its effects and its risks, um, which can continue to this day. Um, but also surgeons no longer have to operate on a patient who is a kind of conscious and agentive presence in the operating theatre. You know, they are effectively asleep or often they are, they're seen as being akin to a corpse. You know, they don't move, they don't say anything. Um, they occasionally snort or, we'll talk about that in a minute perhaps, but um, they do occasionally make some kind of noise, but they are effectively, you know, it's it's another world to the, to the, to the, to the sort of screaming, writhing, um, you know, patient of the pre-anesthetic era. So yes, it's utterly transformative and it fundamentally changes the place of emotions within the practice of surgery because, in a sense, after anaesthesia, patients' emotions don't matter as much. You know, they they're not an emotional presence in the operation itself. And also, increasingly, you know, pre-anaesthetic surgery is such an, an ordeal, emotionally speaking, that patients have to be managed in terms of their mood. So, I mean, surgeons of the pre-anaesthetic era say, you know, if a if a patient is fearful of an operation, if they're profoundly fearful of an operation, they'll probably die. 
even if the operation goes well, because they'll be overcome with um, anxiety and fear and dread, um, and they'll be they'll they'll be sunk by that basically. And so you, it's really vitally important that surgeons kind of manage patients' expectations, make sure that they're prepared emotionally and mentally for the procedure, um, and then to attend to their recovery afterwards and monitor their emotions, see they're not sinking under despondency, which is the kind of way it's often thought of. Because um, this is a period, of course, we'll talk, talk about antisepsis later, but before any kind of conception of, um, of germ theory or infection in the modern sense. So the, the only the, the principal explanation for why patients die after a, after surgery isn't post-operative infection, which is what it later becomes, is the fact that they are despondent, you know, psychologically, emotionally despondent. So it's hugely transformative. And and after that period, you know, there is a fundamental shift in, in kind of the place of the patient as an emotional um, agent in surgery, um, which again we can talk about a little bit later Thank on. You. And uh, how about so romantics? So what is this thing you call romantic surgery? And how is it both? Because yeah. in the book, you talk about it as being both a scientific practice as well as a performative mm. one. Yes. Yeah. So romantic surgery is the term I, I kind of coined to think about early 19th century pre-anesthetic surgery, the sort of period from the 1790s to the 1840s. Um, and in a sense, it's conceived as a... Uh, a corrective to our popular preconception of surgery in this period as being one characterized by a kind of lack of feeling or by a kind of suppression of emotions or by a kind of either by a callousness at worst or at best a kind of form of clinical detachment. Um, and it's imagined and it's been suggested by certain historians in the past that, you know, because of the nature, the grueling nature of these procedures, surgeons had to detach themselves in some way. And actually, what I would argue from looking at the sources I've looked at and the archival research I've done is that the opposite is the case. Um, and that actually early 19th century surgery was profoundly influenced by contemporary social and kind of cultural currents. Um, and the most prominent of these in the early 19th century in that period from the 1790s, 1840s is romanticism. And of course, romanticism, and you'll know this as a, a literary scholar, you know, is a very capacious term. Um, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, and it's applied very differently. And it's not commonly applied in history compared to literary studies to describe this period. But I think that the kind of values of romanticism, which you know, which foreground emotion and feeling, which foreground emotional experience, and emotional reflection and introspection, um, are vital for understanding surgery in this period. So, you know, one of my quintessential romantic surgeons, quote unquote, would be someone like Charles Bell, a leading surgeon in the period, um, Scottish surgeon, who in his letters um, and other kind of writings, you know, talks about the experience of surgery as a kind of profound emotional experience. Um, and, and he reflects on the deaths of his patients. He reflects upon the grueling uh, told her that it takes on him uh, and he kind of communicates these sentiments to to his to his loved ones um, and for him it's you know pain is this is in and the pain of surgery is both um, something which is profoundly emotionally taxing but also a vital part of being a human and for him also being a Christian um, so I'm, I was kind of interested in the ways in which uh, you know the, the role effectively that motion plays 
and, mo and, and kind of romantic sensibility plays in understanding surgery of this period and try to kind of show actually that that surgeons took emotions very seriously um not only in terms of their own feelings and the feelings of their patients but also the role that emotions played in diagnosing disease um and in managing disease um you know emotions aren't simply things that are um sort of a response to illness they're a cause of illness in this period you know so anxiety of mind um in particular can is seen in many cases producing disease and so i was interested by kind of you know showing by thinking about romantic as a kind of concept showing the vital role that emotion experience plays in in shaping all aspects of surgical culture in this period um and also at the same time as you say surgery in this period is self-consciously professionalizing itself you know so it, it surgeons of the early 19th century are very conscious of um their uh desire to be seen as something more than mere tradesmen uh more empirics mere empirics mere kind of um artisans and to be seen as men of science um and uh the key figure here probably um for our purposes is john hunter that the 18th century uh scottish surgeon um there's a lot of scots in this as you can tell a uh, scottish surgeon who who or london based in his case who was a pioneering surgeon and anatomist who is often credited by um the surgeons who he trained and who followed after him as being the kind of quote-unquote father of scientific surgery you know, he established a kind of scientific basis for surgical practice for understanding anatomy for understanding physiology uh, among other things such as embryology as well um and so a lot of these you know Hunter's deified by early 19th century surgeons. Um, he has a statue in the Royal College of Surgeons. There's the Hunterian oration that's given every year at the Royal College of Surgeons and named after him. Um, and those following his wake kind of look to him as an example. And one of the things that they're, they're keen to do in distress um, in this period, surgeons, is that, you know, with this greater knowledge of anatomy, this greater knowledge of physiology, they need no longer kind of um, intervene in the ways in which they might use it. They're critical of kind of a previous um uh, surgical practice where you know surgeons lopped off limbs here and there and uh, were always meddling and probing things and, and getting involved and they're actually saying that what we need to do now is kind of trust to nature um and of course again resonating with that idea of rom romanticism you know nature is the great healer um you know if we follow nature's course we will we will we will do right um and so that also is kind of fundamentally part of uh surgery's professionalizing ethos in the early 19th century it's kind of operative restraint and trusting to nature <clears throat> and uh again speaking about romantic sense of sensibility and emotions that sort of urged surgeons you know to kind of temper their 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 dexterity maybe with their instruments and uh, and also their personal amb ambitions with with emotional sensitivity how did that work how did this romantic uh, sensibility yeah. uh impacted surgeons yeah yeah so basically i mean surgeons of the period are seeking a balance i think between operative dexterity and manual skill you know surgery is a performative practice it's a physical practice it's one which requires a degree of physical dexterity and surgeons are very open about this you know that you need to be good with your hands um you still do you know to be to be a good surgeon and need to know what you're doing with your hands um but they're key at the same time to kind of to sort of counter any image that they're showmen 
So this is one of the kind of cliches of early 19th century surgery, that they're, they're these showy uh, practitioners, that they're all about speed. They're all about demonstrating their manual dexterity through their physical performances. And there's an element of that for sure in early 19th century surgery. Um, but there's also a desire, I think, to counter that with this notion of, of restraint and compassion. So a lot of surgeons of the period say, uh, you know, you shouldn't, you should absolutely put your own desire of esteem, your own kind of um, desire for fame to be regarded as a, a dexterous practitioner, you know, to the back of your mind and concentrate fundamentally on your patient's well-being. You know, what's what's important is is what's good for the patient. Um, uh, and if that means going slowly, it means going slowly. If it means going fast, it means going fast. It shouldn't be about your kind of desire to perform in front of an audience. Because as you, you mentioned, you know, about the operating theatre, I mean, many, many, many operations in this period are conducted at home, um, you know, by fee-paying customers. And it's important to stress that, that, you know, something we haven't really spoken about a lot in the history of surgery, something which hasn't been studied that much, you know, is the kind of, you know, the domestic space as also as an operative space. But in terms of hospital surgery, especially in the sort of London and Edinburgh, you know, these are often conducted in operating theatres where there's an audience of students and other practitioners present, um, and you're performing. You know, you're performing for an audience, and there's a kind of concern that this not be, you know, that this performance not um, be in the interest of the surgeon, but in the interests of the of the patient. Uh, and it becomes about kind of managing those spaces in order to ensure that the patient is. Um, as comfortable as possible. And at the same time, there's an emphasis, I think, increasingly on surgeons, not only to be physically uh, skilled and dexterous, but also to be morally, sort of morally in control of themselves. Um, and I mean that term morally, both in terms of ethics, but also in terms of the contemporary meaning of the term being of morale, you know, in terms of their their mood and their, 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 their emotions, to be morally in control of themselves and their patient. Um, and so there's a kind of sense in which the surgeon has to be almost, I think I call it in the book or certainly elsewhere, a kind of emotional savant. They have to be able to read their patient's emotions. Um, they have to be able to exercise control over their own emotions. Uh, and they also have to kind of almost be able to control the emotions of the space in which they operate. So there's a number of instances I cite where surgeons, you know, offer, offer kind of, you know, um, sort of, you know, call out bad behaviour. Among the among the audiences in, in surgical procedures, um, and 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 sort of are encouraged to exercise a kind of moral influence on those on on you know around whom um, they're, they're they're surrounded by kind of you know practicing with a focused precision um, and kind of you know being concerned with their patients' well being. So it's a kind of about this exertion of of a kind of emotional influence on themselves, their patients, and those around them that I think is profoundly important in surgical performance in this period. And uh, you talk about like a lot of surgeons and a lot of great examples. There's also this other person you talk about in the book, uh, Robert Liston. Uh, he, 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 you talk about a romantic surgeon also being an operative man of feeling. And then you have this example. Can you tell us uh, more about this, please? Yes. I mean, Liston's a fascinating, I think, character for a number of reasons. Um, He's he's come, as I say in, later in the book, to kind of stand in some ways as the ultimate exemplar of pre-anesthetic surgery, the pre-anesthetic surgical performer, um, or at least 
the kind of in the last years of pre-anesthetic surgery because famously Liston is the first person in Britain and indeed Europe to undertake an operation under ether um, in 18, December 1846 um, but then he dies very shortly afterwards in 1847 so he kind of stands at this threshold of the modern the new but is fundamentally rooted in the old gar old world and the other thing is he's very very well known as a performer because there are some surgeons who just aren't particularly good at the physical aspects of surgery they don't enjoy them they don't relish them they're not their forte i mean john abernethy famously is a very well regarded surgeon but doesn't regard himself as a particularly good physical operator whereas listen is famous for it he's famous for his speed for his dexterity for his physical prowess he's 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 over six foot tall you know he's very tall in the early 19th century um and he has this kind of physical presence and so at one level he's regarded as the ultimate kind of showman the ultimate physical surgeon um and he's treated in a lot of popular histories as this as this kind of um uh, quintessence of this old old sort of ancien regime as i call it of kind of pre-anesthetic surgery but actually i want to show that he's more complicated than that and actually um his reputation is shaped but in complex ways by how he's how he's how he's represented in the press and and how he's received when he comes in particular from edinburgh where he starts practicing to, to london where he later practices um and some see him as this kind of ultimately you know physical creature who is who is defined by his physicality by his muscularity um and actually by his indifference to suffering and his kind of his callousness um and that's how some represent him but actually others there's other evidence suggests that he you know he's very concerned about the patient's emotions and and is, and is sensitive to them so in a sense i think what he exemplifies in his kind of contested reputation both at the time and indeed now is this this fine balance between being operative being skillful uh, physically skillful but also being emotionally sensitive and operating with feelings so operating as it were with your patient's emotions in mind um, and exercising a kind of moral and emotional influence over the patient and those around you um because you know yeah he's 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 you know, often sometimes represented you know as kind of um indifferent to patient suffering but i don't think that's the case i don't think any surgeon is really indifferent to suffering because suffering not only is not incidental to the outcome of an operation you know suffering is something which will determine the outcome of an operation so if a patient suffers unduly if if you know then that operation may go badly wrong whereas if you could manage that as much as possible then then you, you're enhancing your chances of things going right so, for example, one of the things that I talk about in the book that surgeons do, you know, they're very concerned things like to cover their instruments over when so patients arrive in the in the in the operating theatre. So that the patients, the first thing they see isn't you know, an array of fearsome looking bone sores and knives you know, that are going to be used on them. There's a case where John Abernethy says, you know, don't use um, don't use terms like knife, say bistury, because a patient patient won't know what a bistury is. But if you say, um, give me the knife they'll panic you know so there's this this always this kind of concern to kind of manage the, the patient's presence and manage their emotions it doesn't always go well as we'll see i mean it often goes badly wrong and surgeons are criticized for handling their operations badly for handling patients badly um but in the ideal form at least uh the ideal surgeon should be one who who is sensitive to his patient um and in control of his own 
emotions or be open to them. And I think that's the thing as well. So, so, so in a way, it's also a debunking of this idea that uh, a, a surgeon is just callous butcher who's just oh. amputating arms and legs. For sure, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, don't, don't get me wrong. You know, the, the experience of surgery in this period is 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 um is not a pleasant one, and surgeons are conscious of how unpleasant it is. But actually, what they talk about is how unpleasant it is. They're not they're not they're not insensitive to it. You know, um, there's often an example given of Charles Bell. Um, who, who, um, as well as being a civil surgeon, civilian surgeon, he goes over to Waterloo famously after the Battle of Waterloo in 1815 to tend to the wounded over there. And he writes these very uh, moving letters back to um, his brother um, and also to, to her friends about his experiences. And he talks about having to contain his emotions as he's chopping off limb after limb, you know, having, he says, you know, he couldn't focus on individuals because that would be to, to be overcome with feeling. So he had to kind of think about the, the grand scheme of things and, 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 and sort of think about his task and his role and not focus on individual suffering. Sometimes this has been seen as an example of kind of indifference or at least um, sort of uh, kind of clinical detachment. But actually, he's making an active effort to try and not allow himself to be overwhelmed by feeling. And his fear is that he will be overwhelmed um, by 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 the emotions of the of the of the um, of the occasion. Um, and we see other examples of surgeons, you know, being overwhelmed. Um, um, we don't get so much of it in, 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 in English material. But possibly the most famous, if anyone knows anything about pre-anesthetic surgery, they'll often refer to Francis Burney's mastectomy, um, which is possibly the the most famous personal testimony of a patient undergoing surgery in the pre-anesthetic era, where she basically has um, her breast removed um, uh, 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 because of the, the fear of, of a tumour um, by um, two French surgeons, um, including one of whom is Dominique Jean-Larie, the, the famous uh, French military surgeon. And, you know, that these surgeons, according to her own testimony, weep during the procedure, you know. And Larry talks about how he had had considered basically getting himself posted to the, to the other end of France that he wouldn't have to see her anymore um, because he was so moved by her plight. So this isn't the kind of thing we associate with modern surgery where surgeons say, I was going to get transferred because I treating you is so emotionally difficult for me. But this is central to kind of, you know, romantic surgical relationship. Um, and that's probably an extreme example, but it's not, un, you know, it's not unusual. Um, other surgeons of the period talk about weeping, um, you know, when confronted by difficult cases or, or, or you know, or particular things that particularly move them. So, yeah, it's, 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 you know, it's definitely kind of part and parcel of surgery in this period in a way that may seem odd to us now, I suspect. Uh, let's talk about uh, emotions and gender. Um, mm. There's this, the, the, how do casebook, there's this character again, Ashley Cooper, you talk about. So how, uh, how about the casebooks of Cooper? How do they reveal the roles of emotions and gender? How how are emotions and genders interrelated here? Yeah, so basically, I I'm, I'm, I'm one of the things I'm really interested in is gender history, and I've I've written about the history of masculinity in relation to medicine and and in other aspects too, and I was very interested about the kind of the gender dynamics of surgical identity in this period, and also the gender dynamics of 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 the surgical relationship between um, surgeons and their and their patients. And I think we tend to think now of surgeons, you know, surgery in this period is, in orthodox terms, orthodox surgery, entirely male. 
um, and masculinist. And as it, you know, it isn't any more entirely male, but the cultures of surgery are still very much associated with kind of my masculinity. And, you know, they, it can be quite a kind of hyper masculine profession. Um, but what we find, I think, in the end of the 19th century is, is a kind of more fluid idea about what masculinity is than perhaps where we expect now in the early 21st century or um, one in which kind of values of sensibility and emotional um, in sort of emotional openness are kind of more valued. And what I wanted to kind of see in, in Cooper's case books um, was the ways in which gender not only structured those identities and those relationships, but also the understanding of disease and its treatment. So Ashley Cooper, who's, again, one of the leading uh, early 19th century surgeons, probably the most celebrated surgical operator in England before Liston comes to, to, to London. Um, he, he, he does a lot of work on breast cancer. Um, so, so a lot of, he sees a lot of patients, female patients with breast cancer. Um, and breast cancer in this period is, as you may imagine, um, a deeply troubling condition. Um, it's almost invariably fatal. Um, it's horribly disfiguring um, because often tumours are detected too late to do anything about them other than cut them out or try and disperse them with these what are, what are called core sticks, which are kind of um, horrific uh, uh, kind of chemicals used to kind of burn effectively the tumour out. Um, and and so they're deeply troubling. Uh, but what I wanted to show in, in this section was actually how kind of contemporary ideas about romantic sensibility shaped the understanding of breast cancer. And this is evident in Cooper's, in Cooper's um, case book. So um, one of the kind of characteristics of romantic sensibility, of course, is the is the veneration of motherhood. Um, and of kind of natural motherhood. Um, and the breast plays a very important role in kind of late 18th, the early 19th century kind of conceptions of motherhood. Um, it's often represented as the, you know, the kind of the font of, of, of maternal succor and maternal um, uh, goodness and, 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 and natural virtue. Um, and of course, it's, it's disfigurement by this horrifically virulent condition is deeply troubling to contemporary gender um, ideologies. And so what one sees looking at Cooper's case books is this kind of deep sense of pathos about women's condition um, and the linking in particular of cancer of the breast to anxiety, to emotion, to a kind of form of emotional anxiety. So often there's various reasons, you know, causes attributed to the um, for cancer in this period, one of which is physical. So like a blow to the body, blow to the breast, for example. But one that's really prominent in, in Cooper's work is this idea about anxiety. So an anxiety of mind can produce um, a tumour or can or can or can, dispute, can dispose the constitution to the production of cancer. And what's interesting is that this cancer is linked not only to anxiety, but to the specific anxieties of femininity, particularly motherhood. Um, so it's it's women's anxiety about their children, anxiety about the health of their children, the deaths of their children that are held by Cooper and others to produce cancer. And so we have this kind of sense in which breast cancer and its treatment are, are wrapped up in a in a in a constellation of emotions associated with motherhood and its veneration in this period. Um, and as I say, it lends it this this kind of deep pathos. 
I think, in the kind of treat in the treatment of 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 cancer and in its representation. Um, so I was interested by how that, in, in a sense, therefore, gender and emotion configured these relationships between um, patients and their practitioners, and and how they structured the kind of clinical encounter. And uh, another interesting aspect of history of emotion is that we tend not to think of emotions as only being just some passive states of mind. And and, and I was really uh, interested to see that you also talk about emotions as being a form of agency. So how is this mm. agency expressed through embodied acts? It would be great if you could mm. uh, give us some examples and explain what you mean by that emotions uh, being a form of agency. Yes, basically, um, yeah, I, you know, I was thinking about the ways in which um, patients kind of lev. There's two. There's two aspects of this. One is the ways in which patients leverage their emotions in determining their treatment. So the kind of material I'm looking at, patients have a greater or lesser degree of agency, often depending upon their social class, um, as well as other factors such as race. Um, so. You know, wealthy patients who are who are contracting a surgeon on a private basis may have a greater degree of agency in determining their treatment. They can say, I don't want this. I do want this. A uh, patient in a hospital may have less agency, but that doesn't mean say they don't have any. Um, and actually what you see in letters, for example, to Cooper, I looked in particular at Cooper's letters, hundreds of letters written to him by um, his his uh, by patients, their medical attendants, family, where they say things, you know, no, I am, you know, I have. I'm anxious about this and I don't want to do this, I'd rather do this. Or they often talk about their anxieties as um, determining their treatment, shaping what they want to happen. And so I was interested by the ways in which those kind of forms of um, those emotional expressions kind of shape the clinical encounter. But in terms of embodied acts, I was also interested in, in, in the ways in which kind of we might not think of them, you know, we might think of them as kind of affect of the kind of embodied expressions of feeling determined the outcomes of surgical procedures. So in an era when the patient is fully conscious in surgery, in many cases, patients' bodies act in ways over which they have little control. So um, we'll have accounts of patients, you know, limbs flailing around or patients being overwhelmed by a kind of, you know, shaking and, and other kind of physical expressions of 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 emotion that have to be managed um but at the time surgeons at this period you know think about these um physical embodiments of feeling in terms of uh, what's called irritability so they talk about patients you know parts of the body being irritable more or less irritable and kind of responding physically to to operative intervention but then patients themselves become kind of denominated more or less irritable in their constitution in their temperament so what i was interested by is the ways in which kind of embodied forms of agency or embodied forms of resistance that may be unconscious patients not patients not deliberately thrashing around on the table necessarily the limb isn't deliberately um uh, they haven't lost control of the limb through an act of conscious volition it just happens uh but the ways in which that's kind of seen as um saying something about who they are as a person and the kind of constitution they have so often we'll see irritability linked to um kind of conventional ethnic and racial uh uh stereotypes so the irish 
who, as you may know, you know, was subject to a great deal of prejudice in 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 early nineteenth century, nineteenth century uh, England, Britain more generally, are often seen as represented as being more irritable, more obstreperous, and difficult in surgery than others. Um, and so, I was interested about the ways in which this kind of communicated ideas about sort of emotions and um, character. Um, because the, the idealised operative subject in the early 19th century is the one who displays fortitude. And fortitude is the is the ubiquitous term that surgeons use to kind of um, to to kind of to comment positively on patient behaviour. That they exhibited great fortitude in undergoing this procedure. And it's when patients don't op you know, express or exhibit fortitude that I'm interested in what that tells us about how they regard people and the links they make between kind of emotions, embodiment and identity um, in surgical practice. Um, so I'm also interested in things, another thing I talk about in, there, in, in, in that part of the chapter is also about, you know, stumps, um, amputation. You know, amputation is a not uncommon procedure in this period um, because there's only so much you can do to limit the spread of an infection. Or, or the spread of uh, any other kind of condition. So you often have to cut off the disease part, and that leads to, you know, um, stumps, which even now can be tr troublesome in terms of their, um, uh, 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 you know, sort of what was the time might be called jumpiness, you know. They can be irritable. Uh, patients can get phantom limbs. They can think their limb is there, but it's not. And it's about how those kind of things are seen as a form of of kind of emotional, um, or a, a form of emotional embodiment, I think, in this period that I was interested in. Uh, let's talk about the famous uh, medical journal, The Lancelet, uh, and its editor, Thomas Wackley. So how he critiqued the corruption of London surgical elite. So what was his critique about and what were the implications of that for surgical professions? Yeah, so... So I've, uh, Thomas Wackley is someone who recurs in a lot of my work. Um, he's, a, he's a leading proponent of, of what's called medical reform in the early 19th century, uh, which kind of mirrors a broader political reform in the sense that he seeks to challenge what he sees as the monopolistic um, oligarchical privileges of a select few London surgeons um, who occupy positions of authority at the major hospitals. And um, as part of this campaign, to kind of reform surgery, medicine and surgery. He um, embarks in the 1820s and 30s on, an, on a kind of campaign to expose what he sees as examples of surgical incompetence. So in so far in the book, up until sort of chapter four, I'm really talking about kind of idealised representations of surgery and, 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 and the ways in which the kind of um, surgery um, uh, is perceived to kind of, that it should work, the way that operators should behave um, and, the, and the kind of positive values that they internalise. What Wackley does in this campaign is to kind of expose instances where that isn't the case. And this is in a sense where I came in with Bransby Cooper's famous botched lithotomy in 1828. This is how I came into the project in the first place and thinking about how it is that Wackley and others, what it is that they're seeking to expose, what it is that these surgeons are doing wrong uh, in their conduct, um, their insensitivity to the patient, um, their callousness, their lack of care, um, their lack of emotional self-control, um, why this is a bad thing, and also how Wackley himself leverages emotion to, to, to kind of um, arouse anger and indignation at the conduct of these, of these men, who are seen to be, particularly in the case of someone like Bransby Cooper, who is the nephew of Astley Cooper. Astley Cooper is generally regarded as this great um, operative surgeon 
Wackley has enormous respect for him, but his nephew Bransby Cooper is seen to, by many, certainly by Wackley, to have got his position at Guy's because of his 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 relationship to Cooper, not because of his abilities. So he's he, he exposes other seeks to expose other surgeons and other instances of surgical incompetence, and he does this, I argue, fundamentally through a language of melodrama. So um, you know, melodrama. You know, we now think of kind of melodrama, I guess, as highly emotionally wrought kind of um, uh, 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 drama in the early 19th century is is often associated with political radicalism because it's about sort of people um, who have, you know, who, who are basically subject to oppression, who then who, who have their virtue tested in struggle and then overcome this uh, through their through their kind of moral virtue. Um, and, and Wackley kind of uses the language of melodrama, you know, talking in these ex- very grandiose Gothic terms about about, um, you know, the, 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 the sort of uh, terror um, um, uh, and, and kind of uh, horror of 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 um, of of these kind of incom- forms of incompetent practice to kind of rouse the the indignation of his readers against these people. So you know, it's it's a language that you know would seem utterly alien to people reading medical journals now. You don't expect to go to the Lancet now, which is still a leading medical journal. And I mean, Richard Horton, the editor of Lancet, is quite outspoken actually. I think has modelled himself in part on Wackley. Um, but you know, the language Wackley uses. You know, viciously attacking individuals, uh, uh, talking about the kind of you know dungeons and 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 people being shackled and 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 freed from tyranny and all this kind of language is very hyperbolic, very melodramatic. He kind of uses, I think, to kind of uh, leverage people's anger, leverage people's indignation at the situation. Um, and it's interesting because what it throws up is it. it the whole the whole of the, the kind of debate around this because you know many people regard this as inappropriate many many of his surgical opponents many of his political opponents say this is you know they call it kind of um uh, uh you know sentimental lacrimation um and mock heroic bombast is the kind of one of the phrase that can be used to attack his writing um you know they say that basically you're you're humiliating these people you know by exposing their 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 um their errors by exposing, um, you know, their, 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 these unfortunate incidents, you're, you're adding to their kind of emotional burden of surgery. You know, they already feel bad enough that these operations have gone wrong. They don't need you kind of humiliating them in public and rousing kind of public indignation against them to add to this. So I was interested by how even in the kind of languages of political or medical reform, emotion is absolutely central to, to kind of structuring rhetoric and structuring popular sort of reformist attitudes towards towards surgical practice in London. Um, how about the rise of uh, surgical scientific uh, modernity? How did it affect the emotional regimes of uh, romantic sensi- sensibility? And there was also this law, the Anatomy Act, which was passed in 1832. Uh, so it would be great if we could talk about that as well. Yeah, so basically, uh, one of the things I'm keen to do in the book is, is chart a shift away from what I call this emotional regime of romantic sensibility towards one of scientific modernity to kind of show how emotions in a way the emotions um were, were moved from the center of kind of medical consciousness um and increasingly marginalized um and gave way to kind of other concerns and i see this shift really taking place in the 18 beginning in the 1820s and 1830s um and in chapter five of the book, I kind of the first part of that chapter is really concerned with the Anatomy Act of 1832, 
which basically is a very well known, it's an infamous act really in, in history of medicine in Britain, in that it makes available uh, the bodies of unclaimed bodies of people dying in workhouses, hospitals and other kind of institutions. It makes those bodies available to surgeons to be dissected. Um, and this really emerges from a long-standing controversy about the surgical appropriation of, of bodies, because beginning in the sort of late eight, mid to late 18th century, surgeons had increasingly kind of said, well, in order to practice surgery well, you have to have an intimate anatomical knowledge. And you also, you know, you have that could only be done by operating, by dissecting a cadaver. It can't be done through lectures and instruction. You have to kind of do it yourself, dissect bodies. And so how do you get hold of these bodies? Well, there's only one legal way of doing it in the 18th, early 19th century, and that's through um, criminals who are executed for murder, whose bodies can be given up to the rock, to the College of Surgeons. Um, and that's nowhere near enough bodies uh, for, for training surgeons um, uh, in this period. So surgeons famously, infamously, um, either steal bodies themselves from graveyards or get others to steal them for them. Um, most often that's contracted out by the early 19th century to, to gangs of res what are called resurrection men um, to, uh, or grave robbers to basically steal bodies from freshly dug graves. Um, and this leads to a huge kind of public outcry um, in the 1820s, and, 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 and it's compounded in 1828 by the discovery of Burke and Hare's crimes in Edinburgh, where you know, these, two, these two men um, are not only stealing bodies, they're murdering people, um, suffocating them, and then selling their bodies to surgeons um, to, to dissect. And so what I'm interested in, in the book is the way in which this debate around the anatomy act sees a kind of a, a, a different language emerging about emotion and sentimentality. So like rather than sensibility or rather than emotion being something kind of lauded as, as indicative of kind of moral virtue, there's a distinction being made here between emotions that are appropriate, that are useful, that are constructive and emotions that are fundamentally um, sentimental or, 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 or kind of, you know, um, you know, have no, have no, ultimate purpose you know they, they don't serve any purpose they're, they're just kind of you know emotions for the sake of them and this really focuses on the place on the on the kind of the, the place of the the corpse um within surgical culture because surgeons are keen to find some way to um to get access to bodies that isn't illegal um or at least not technically legal but like you know that isn't illicit um or doesn't risk um, coming into contact with the law. So they, there are a number of kind of campaigns, um, claims made in the 1820s in particular for, for the idea that bodies, unclaimed bodies should be given up to surgeons for the greater good. And the important thing here is 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 the is the kind of philosophy of utilitarianism, which I see as being central to shifting the kind of emotional, um, sort of the emotional cultures of surgery. So utilitarianism, um, uh, famously, uh, uh, the, the kind of moral philosophy uh, propounded by Jeremy Bentham, most often kind of, you know, uh, uh, simplified as the greatest good for the greatest number, um, which kind of sees, um, you know, sees sort of, OK, what, what, you know, what, you know, kind of more instrumentalist kind of response to, to emotion. So. Bentham said he had no time for feeling and, and, and James Mill, the other founder of utilitarianism, was famous for having kind of no or well known, his, according to John Stuart Mill, his, his son, for having no emotions at all, as he saw it. 
And they say, well, you know, it doesn't matter what people feel about bodies. What matters is, is what purpose they serve, right? If a body can be used to educate surgeons to improve surgical knowledge and improve knowledge for everyone, that is preferable to a body going to waste, as they see it, simply because people have sentimental attachment to it. Um, and so this kind of discourse emerges in the 1820s, whereby um, the appropriation of the body, of body, and specifically the bodies of the poor, because these are the people who are dying in workhouses and hospitals, uh, there's a, this kind of discourse that emerges whereby their appropriation can be justified on emotional grounds, right? So it's it's there's you know there is this dismissal of a kind of sentimental attachment to bodies in of themselves and this idea that well a body only has meaning in terms of its emotional relations to others right so if you're dead you don't know you don't care what happens to your body because you're dead you don't know about it you can't have any emotions about it they would argue um However, if your loved one dies, if your husband or your wife, or whatever, their body, they die, you might have a sentimental attachment to their body because it represents who they were. And so they say, well, if there's no one, if, if people die without friends, without relations, their body has no emotional significance. It is emotionally neutral. It is just a cadaver and therefore it can be appropriated. Um, and so this kind of discourse around the act centers on on the kind of emotional, the emotional quality of the body. You know, what is it? What does a dead body mean? What emotions does it possess? It possesses utilitarians would argue, particularly Thomas Southwood Smith, who's Jeremy Bentham's personal physician, who famously, again, perhaps infamously dissects Bentham and preserves his body. Uh, and it's still on display to this day in University College London. Um, you know. He, he sees this as, you know, well, you know, the, the bodies of the poor who die without, you know, in workhouses are quote unquote friendless. So therefore they can be appropriated. And so we see this kind of interesting reconfiguration of emotion around bodies and also it's increasing association with the demands of the state. So, you know, utilitarians say, well, you know, these people's bodies are being claimed for the public good, right, um, for the greater good. And they compare the sort of emotional sacrifice, if there is any involved in that, to the emotional sacrifice, for example, of those who die in war. They say, well, in war, we require people to give up their lives for the greater good of the, 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 the state. All we're asking now is for people to give up their bodies for the greater good of the state. And all we're asking is people who don't have any friends anyway, and then anyone left to care about them to give up their bodies for the state. So there's an interesting, I think, reconfiguration of emotion as something far more instrumentalist. You know, what what good does this emotion do? What purpose does it serve for us um, in, in, in advancing surgery and advancing surgical knowledge? And I think that represents a fundamental shift from what had come before. How about the use of inhalation anesthesia and the influence it had on the on the utilitarian thought um, uh, and how, how I mean, it affected the conception of pain agency and, and, and the body of patients? Yes, I mean, there's a reason in chapter five of the book I, I can combine analysis of the of the anatomy act with um, anesthesia, and these are two things that have not generally been brought together before, um, because I see them as fundamentally both speaking to a kind of utilitarian conception of the body. Um, so, uh, you know, in the one hand, there's utilitarian saying we could appropriate these bodies that are emotionless for the purposes of surgical knowledge for improving surgical knowledge. 
The other thing where utilitarianism comes into anesthesia is that Jeremy Bentham famously, you know, his his great desire was to promote happiness. And the flip side of that was to reduce pain. And he said pain is the only true evil. We should endeavor in all of our in all of our efforts to reduce pain um, and suffering. And so anesthesia, in a sense, does just that, right? It, it is it is about the elimination of suffering and pain from surgical practice. Um, and it, 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 you know, pain in this period, it's very complicated. There's a lot of very interesting work being done on pain, um, history of pain. But why I see it is that kind of pain can be one of two things in this period. It can either be a test of virtue, um, a test of particularly of kind of masculine virtue and and, and kind of resolve and rigor, um, or you know, kind of um, ability to withstand um, uh, uh, suffering. But also, it's in a utilitarian configuration being kind of configured increasingly as a as a as a kind of meaningless blight on human existence that that can be should be eliminated. And anesthesia does does just does just that. And so anesthesia, as I said earlier, transforms the terrain, the emotional terrain of surgery. It, it, it removes the patient as a kind of emotionally agentive, emotional presence in the operating theatre, at least after it's introduced. And what I'm interested in doing in this chapter is actually, you know, seeing how that kind of idea of the patient as being like a corpse or like a person to sleep is constructed in the early months of anesthesia of anesthesia. Because it isn't, anesthesia, you know, applying ethyl and chloroform isn't a straightforward process. We have these images, right, from kind of film and television of someone with a handkerchief, you know, with, with chloroform on it, putting it over someone's mouth and they just faint and, you know, pass out and that's it. Easy, easily done. Actually, you know, chloroform, we can kill someone with too much chloroform. Uh, sometimes it works on people. It, it works on some people better than others. Um, and what you see when ether, and in particular ether was first introduced in 1846 and 1847, you see um, all sorts of strange experiences. So patients talk about hallucinations. They they speak during the operation. They sing during the operation. They make jokes. They convulse. They say they've seen God. Um, they 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 say all sorts of things. And there's this kind of real profusion, actually, of 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 kind of idiosyncrasy of, of personal experience, of personal character, kind of coming out in this in this um, uh, anesthetic experience. Um, and what's really interesting, or what I'm really interested in, is the way which John Snow, very famous kind of mid-century practitioner, associated both with uh, cholera, the, the 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 kind of waterborne theory of cholera, but also with um, the use of, of anaesthesia. He basically attempts to kind of silence this experience right? and say, you know, patients will experience a lot of things under anaesthesia, but just, you know, don't encourage them to talk about it. <laughs> you know, don't ask them. It's not interesting. It's not relevant. You know? These are things that have been hugely relevant um, to, to kind of previous understandings of, of of operative surgery they've been relevant to to um to kind of early experiments with anesthesia in the form of mesmerism what we might now think of kind of as hypnotism where kind of patient what patients saw what patients experienced was was, was seen as vitally important knows like it's not important it doesn't matter what happens under anesthesia right what matters is that surgeon that patients don't experience any pain that's the only thing that matters and one of the ironies 
of all of this is that we still don't know really what patients experience under anesthesia. There's still a lot of research going into what it is that patients actually experience, where they actually do experience pain but can't remember it, where they experience other kinds of forms of consciousness. Um, and so Snow is an attempting in a way to kind of silence the patient and say, you know, it's easier for us practically and emotionally if the patient is silent during, a, during operation. And surgeons, a lot of surgeons hail this as the great benefit of, of, of anaesthesia is that not only do the patients now no longer experience pain, but surgeons no longer have to bear the emotional burden of cutting into a suffering person. You know, it's placid. It's now a placid atmosphere that they, that, that they can work in. And so generally it's seen as very, very positive, of course. But intriguingly, other people kind of see it as problematic because they see, well, you know, the patient just doesn't feel the same anymore. You know, they they their body doesn't feel the same as when we used to operate, you know, before anesthesia. It's like we're operating on corpses now and it's changed the haptic experience of surgery. You know, um, the body doesn't behave in the way in which we might want it to. Or in some cases, the some surgeons say, well, actually, it's useful to have the patients conscious because, we know when we're going too far if if they start screaming or if they say no ouch not there you know um and so and so it's this kind of intersubjective this kind of partnership that is that is kind of associated with early with predecessor surgery is now is now entirely gone and surgeons kind of operating as it were as if they're dissecting a corpse and for some people that's great for most people that's great for other people, it's more problematic, um, but fundamentally, yeah, as we said, you know, it changes it changes that emotional dynamic completely. That the patient is now no longer a kind of emotional presence during the operation itself. And and the the rise of antisepsis, uh, antisepsis. How how did it eliminate mm. patient as an emotional agent? Yeah. So basically, um, following on from the kind of discussion of anesthesia, so the patient is 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 you know, fundamentally kind of removed as an emotional presence um, by the advent of anaesthesia. But that doesn't mean that surgery is transformed overnight. Um, and you still get things like post-operative infections um, in which patients kind of, you know, will undergo an operation and then they'll sink and die, you know, after an operation, especially for things like septicemia, pymia, um, and other post, other kind of post-operative um, uh, uh, forms of sepsis, um, and this is a real problem in the 1860s. It, there's a there's a huge debate about um, why patients are dying from surgery still, um, why they're dying in the numbers that they are, um, and it's all it's all quite complicated. But basically, one of the leading figure, one of the leading figures in in resolving this dispute is 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 Joseph Lister. He was an English surgeon um, practicing for much of his career in, in Scotland, first at Edinburgh, then so first at Glasgow and then at Edinburgh. And he basically um, is open to early theories about germs coming from particularly uh, Louis Pasteur's work in France and later Robert Koch's work in Germany, where he's kind of conscious of the fact that there is something in the atmosphere that is leading to these patients developing infections and then dying. Um, and he experiments with various techniques using uh, particularly carbolic acid to kill whatever these things are um, before they infect the wound. 
um, and preventing the wound from becoming infected and preventing the patient from, from, from dying from infection. But his, his views are um, not uncontroversial because there are many surgeons who say, well, actually, you know, we're fixed on these, fixated on these, these unidentifiable, these kind of, you know, these invisible germs in the atmosphere we're focused on kind of preventing them from from getting to the wound but actually what about the patient's constitution what about the patient's mood what about the kind of patient's bearing their personal kind of qualities these have an important role to play and this had been absolutely the way that kind of pre-anesthetic surgeons had thought about surgical recovery and it continues into the 1860s and a lot of people arguing against Lister are basically saying you're you're too reductive. You're saying it's all about these germs, whereas actually it's about the patient's emotions, the patient's gender, the patient's race, the patient's um, you know kind of other kinds of factors. Um, but effectively, what Lister does, because he's ultimately successful in 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 kind of winning out in this dispute, is he says that's got nothing to do with anything anymore. Right? The patient's character, the patient's mood, is in a sense an irrelevance to whether they die or don't die of, of, uh, after a surgical procedure. What's of relevance is the condition of their wound um, and keeping it free of germs. Um, and so, in a sense, the, 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 that, that is the last sort of remnant of the patient's emotional presence in kind of surgical cosmology is, is um, eliminated by antisepsis, in my argument. Um, it, it's complicated because there are other areas of surgery where the motion motion still play a role. But I think certainly um, Liston's work represents a kind of triumph of a techno scientific view of of surgery, where it's about um, uh, you know keeping the patient's wound free of germs, and that is all that will you know that's all that is needed. So famously, um, sort of. Similar to, to 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 Pasteur, Liston has these bottles of 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 urine um, with different necks on them. One with one that's got a stop in it, one that's got cotton wool in it, one that's got a swan neck. Um, it's too complicated to explain here. Well, it's not that complicated, but basically, what it shows is that um, there's something in the atmosphere uh, that that is that is uh, um, coming into an outside agent that's coming into these things and making them putrefy um, that that is either stopped by the bottle being stopped up or it's prevented from accessing it by this swan neck um, and so this is his kind of famous experiment to show that germs something is getting in to the body to 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 cause sepsis and one of his one of his kind of followers one of his um um uh uh sort of student says you know basically the the, the 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 patient is now like a bottle of urine that you just have to stop them up you have to stop the germs getting in and then everything will be fine you know so they've gone from being these kind of complex you know emotional um entity with interdependent states of mind to being a kind of bottle of putrescent material that you just have to kind of prevent from getting germs in it and once you prevent germs from getting in it that's it that's all you need to do and everything else is just, you know, everything else is just window dressing. That's fundamentally what what you know surgical recovery is based on. So I kind of see this kind of listens work as the ultimate triumph in some ways of that of that ultra rationalist techno scientific approach to kind of surgery that tends to marginalise emotions, um, if not eliminate them entirely in in considerations of operative practice. And and how was surgery associated with sentimentalised uh, terms, and what function did it serve? Yeah, so one of the things I try and do in that, the final chapter of the book is at the same time as saying that 
Liston um, was responsible in a sense for kind of marginalizing emotions within kind of surgical thought, surgical cosmology. Um, he also is configured in highly sentimentalized terms. So Liston is often seen as a godlike savior of humankind. He's fated as a hero, particularly by his acolytes and his pupils, um, but also more generally in kind of histories of surgery, including contemporary, you know, more recent histories of surgery. He's kind of seen mm -hmm. as this kind of almost Christ-like figure. And he's called a god by his patients. He's called a god by his 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 students. Um, and he's this sort of, and he's seen as this man of kind of infinite compassion because what he's doing is fundamentally compassionate, right? Um, because he's saving people through the healing power of science. And, and so he's often portrayed as a man who's deeply moved by his experiences. But actually what I've suggested is that there's a kind of, there's a performative aspect to this, that interestingly, what's interesting about listen is he's a man who also stands at a threshold of sorts because he's, he's trained in the, immediate post-anesthetic era but kind of you know comes to prominence very much in the post-anesthetic era and his early lectures are very much akin to those given by other romantic surgeons where they're all about you know suffering they're all about you know um doing the best for your patient uh, being 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 open to feeling um not being hard-hearted not being callous but being a man of sensitivity but by the latter part of his career that's all gone it's completely gone. He's all about mm. antisepsis. He's all about chemistry. Um, he's all about germ theory. Um, and, and that kind of aspect of his working practice is gone. But actually, by the, at the same time, somewhat counterintuitive, perhaps his, his, his followers sentimentalize him as this man of infinite compassion and infinite sensitivity. And what I see there is a kind of construction of surgery that I think continues to this day whereby surgeons don't have to be emotionally astute. I mean, there's debates within surgery about what role emotion and intelligence plays, but they're not historically yeah. seen as needing to be emotionally astute, emotionally sensitive. What they do is inherently compassionate, right? By healing, they are, they are, that is a work of compassion in and of itself. Um, and it's interesting in the work that I've done with surgeons, a lot of surgeons have been quite reticent to talk about their own emotional responses because they sort of think, well, you know, I am, as a matter of course, I'm a, I'm a, you know, you know, the, the, I am doing a kind of a good, compassionate thing by by healing patients, you know, by treating them. Mm. But there doesn't actually still there doesn't have to be any particular attention paid to the patient's emotions or to the surgeon's own emotions in reflecting on their practice anymore. I think that's changing. I think, mm. but I think historically in the 20th century, emotions did not play a hugely significant role either in surgical self presentation or in um in the the um the kind of uh the, the the kind of discussion of disease or of surgical practice but at the same time surgery itself was configured as an inherently virtuous and compassionate act um yeah oh sorry i can't hear you you've gone i don't know if you've oh muted. sorry i forgot to i forgot to unmute <laughs> my microphone uh before we end this conversation is there any other a project you're currently working on? Yes, so um, I'm currently developing a new project um, uh, along with uh, Dr. Joanne Bajato of Oxford Brookes University on uh, the, the, the history, the cultural and emotional history of the hand 
in 19th century Britain. So one of the things I became very interested in or have been very interested in for some time out coming out of the surgery, which I knew was, see there's lots of hands on the front cover of the book, for example, um, is the kind of place of embodied skill and manual dexterity in surgical practice. Um, and this is, we're kind of combining our interests of jo Joanza, um, historian of, of gender and uh, emotions and the body um, and masculinity. Um, and we're particularly interested by the ways in which Victorians um, kind of reify and indeed deify the hand as an object. The, the hands are ubiquitous in Victorian culture. That they cast hands, they draw hands, they um, they judge people's character according to their hands. You know, we, we know all about things like phrenology and so on and and physiognomy, but there's actually a science of kind of, of reading people's character through their hands as well, of course, as as, as hand of palm reading and, and the more chiromancy and other kind of more um, spiritualist practices. So interesting kind of the role that hands play in, in, in basically thinking about Victorian culture and society, social relations, gender relations, class relations. Uh, and even relations between the living and the dead, which in things like um, spiritualism and automatic writing and the place of the hand as a kind of conduit for spiritual forces. So, yeah, that's that's our project. Um, and as part of that, we're working with um, surgeons and quilters um, to think about the kind of shared practices of handwork and the ways in which, you know, um, identity and practice are um, located in the hand and in and in, in and in haptic skill. So we've got a couple of workshops coming up where we're working with the Quilters Museum, um, Quilters Guild Museum in York in England, and the Royal College of Surgeons of London of England in London uh, to to kind of do a couple of workshops bringing those different constituencies together, uh, which is kind of connecting our historical research with kind of modern practice really, which is kind of what I did with the, the surgery to motion project or tried to do. So yeah, very excited about that um, grant bid. Um, uh, is is in preparation, fingers crossed. Uh, uh, really like to to work on it and 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 kind of uh, uh, do something which I think is really exciting and and could could make a major contribution to our understanding of of kind of Victorian Britain. Well, sounds sounds like a very novel and interesting topic. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts on New Books Network and hope to be able to talk to you soon again about your project once it's published. Excellent. Thank you very much. It's, it's my pleasure.